how we view God shapes the way we view everything else. I'm paraphrasing something A.W. Tozer famously said. The way you think about God shapes the way you think about everything else. How do you view the God of the Bible? How do you think of Him? What is He like in your estimation? How do you view the God of the Bible? Is He severe and strict or gracious and generous? When you think of God... Primarily, I'm referring to the God, the one true and living God, the God is revealed in the Bible and in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. When you think of God, do you think of Him as um, a giver or a taker? As a giver or a taker? As fundamentally generous or stingy? Do you see God as someone who wants to take or to give? One reason I think many people don't give their lives to God is because they think that God is a taker, not a giver. That God wants to take their life, take their joy, take their freedoms, take their happiness, rather than give them life, give them joy, give them freedom, give them happiness. One of the things, therefore, that has to happen for us to truly give our lives to God is that we need to understand that God is most fundamentally a giver, not a taker. What do I mean by this? Again, I mean that at His core, God is generous, not stingy. God is liberal. Stop thinking about politics. God is liberal. God is liberal. You can quote me on that. God is liberal, meaning lavish, abundant, profuse, plentiful in His Giving. He's open-handed, not close-handed. God is not a miser. God is not a Scrooge. God is the most generous person in the universe. And what am I basing all of this on? Well, everywhere in the Bible, you'll read things about how God created everything. I read one at the beginning of the service, Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Or Genesis 14, 19, God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And on and on I could give examples, but what does this mean? It means that everything that is, is God's. Everything that is, seen and unseen, is God's. Everything that is, belongs to God. Everything we have, is God's. Everything we think we own actually belongs to God. Every molecule of every possession we have is on loan to us from God. Our family, friends, job, money, house, apartment, food, water, insurance, car, children, grandchildren, internet service, retirement, blood in our veins, breath in our lungs, on and on I could go. All of it, every molecule of it is not yours fundamentally, it's God's. God has shared the riches of His abundance in His creation with us. Paul even says it this way in 1 Timothy 6, 17. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So He doesn't just share His stuff. He wants us to enjoy His stuff. 
James, the apostle, says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Again, everything that is, is God's. Everything we have is God's. This is what I mean when I say God is generous. He's liberal. He's profuse in his generosity. How do we know that? Because everything that we have is actually not ours. It's his. But he lets us enjoy it and in a sense have it. This is even more amazing when you consider that God gives his stuff to billions of people who could care less about God. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. He says that the Father makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. The Apostle Paul, when he's preaching in Acts 14, he tells these pagan people who never heard of the God of the Bible that God is actually the one who gave them light and water and food and even laughter. (laughs) People who have never heard of God laugh Because God made them happy, gave them the ability to experience enjoyment in life. Again, every single thing in our lives and in our experience is from Him. God is a giver at heart, not a taker, even toward His enemies. This is best illustrated, of course, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, we learn that God gave for people who've turned their backs on Him, His highest and most important gift. Instead of giving us judgment, He gives us Himself, His only Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, John 3.16. Jesus gave His life for people who by nature don't want to give their lives to Him. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. God is fundamentally a giver, not a taker. We see this in creation and the common grace of everything we have. And we see this in the gospel in the Son of God being given to us, not earned, given to us by grace when we deserve the opposite. So God is not a miser. God is not a Scrooge. He's the most generous person in the universe. Everything that is, is His. If this is true... If what I'm arguing here is true and biblical, if God is most fundamentally a giver and not a taker, then one of the most godlike things we can do is give. It's actually been said that we are most like God when we're giving. So, as I said earlier, for the next two weeks, I decided to preach on my most favorite subject to preach on giving or generosity. Most pastors feel very uncomfortable preaching about giving, and I am among their number. Why? Because there's a fear that I have of being misunderstood. Fear of people thinking that all the church cares about is money. Fear of being misinterpreted, maybe thinking that I'm preaching some prosperity gospel, that if we give money to God, then God will bless us. More on that next week. So I want to spend a few moments this morning starting... Uh, telling you several reasons why I think generosity should be preached on and why it should be preached on in particular as a part of this current series on the church. Um, I think it was Jeff the other day reminded me, and I didn't have this in my notes, but the first reason is it's in the Bible. <laughs> generosity is in the Bible, therefore I think I should preach on it. But the first, question, uh, the first reason I came up with was this. 
Coming off of three weeks of discussion about the church's mission, I want to make the connection for us between God's work in the world and our money. So we just did three weeks on, on missions. God doesn't need us, but His design, His purpose is to use people like us to advance His work in the world, and that advancement always requires money. <laughs> Getting the gospel to the unreached places of the world Planting churches, paying pastors, always has required sacrificial giving from God's people. Randy Alcorn, in his book I mentioned earlier, The Treasure Principle. If you weren't here, I have a stack of these books in the foyer. Grab one on your way out. The Treasure Principle, Alcorn says, when people ask him that they, or they tell him they want to have more of a heart for missions, he says, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and in your church and the poor and your heart will follow. He's referring to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. In other words, Jesus says our hearts will follow our treasure. We put money in things we love and we love the things we put our money in. Jesus wants our hearts to treasure the things that he treasures. Jesus wants us to love the things that He loves. Jesus loves the nations. And He wants us to love the nations. So as we put our dollars towards mission work and evangelism and church planting, our love for the nations, Lord willing, will increase. So I want to draw the connection between the last three weeks and all this talk about the Great Commission and missions and the unreached and how that has to, has to do something to your wallet. (laughs) It has to change the way you think about your money. Direct connection between money and missions. Second reason I want to preach on this is because radical generosity marks God's people. One of the things that marks God's people off from the world. In other words, generosity is one way that the church is seen as the church in the world. Self-sacrifice defined Jesus. Therefore, it must define His followers also, especially in an increasingly self-absorbed consumeristic culture, one of the ways we reveal ourselves, we reveal that we belong to another culture, if you will, is through generosity, liberal giving, open-handed, radical generosity. Many Christians, unfortunately, fail to see generosity as a necessary part of their Christian discipleship. They might assume, you might assume that generosity is for those who have lots of money, those who are older, have disposable income or whatever. Many of us fail to see generosity as a calling of every disciple of Jesus, not an optional calling for a few. Generous financial giving is one way that all of us will reveal that we belong to Jesus and belong to His body on the earth, His church. Third reason I want to preach on this is because, just simply put, many Christians have not been taught basic biblical principles about giving or have misguided notions about the why and the what of giving. This morning's message will be more about the why. Next week I'm going to get into more of the what and try to answer more practical questions next week. And then one final reason I want to share with you why I I want to preach these messages. I want to preach on generosity in order to encourage you, Preston Highlands Baptist Church, to keep doing what you're doing. One of my great 
pleasures as your pastor has been to see your faithful and generous giving. Now, I don't know who gives what, and I won't. Um, What I do know is that our church's giving went from $75,000 a year to $190,000 a year in five years. And this wasn't because our church grew in some crazy way numerically. I think it was because God started working in our members and new members' hearts to give generously, sacrificially, and consistently. Yes, this year we did have to cut our budget for the first time since I've been your pastor, but this was because, as I've shared, we anticipate our giving to go down this year because around 15 of our members have moved away. Amazingly, though, (laughs) this is the Lord's grace, if the trend of the first quarter of this year continues, we'll give $30,000 more this year than we anticipated. May it be so. Some, some will hear these messages and be encouraged to keep doing what you're doing. You'll be excited that you're a part of the Lord's work, that, that God is using you and your dollars and cents for His glory. Some are going to hear these messages and be challenged to start giving more faithfully, to be more generous in your giving. And both of those are good and right responses. Our church covenant says, as members of Preston Highlands, we covenant to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. So let me be crystal clear. These messages are not given because our church is in some kind of financial trouble. These messages are being given because this is always our call. Generosity is one of the things that has to always shape us as Jesus' followers. I want to encourage us to keep up the good work and to instruct us on what the Bible says about this topic. Now, I'll take great comfort in the fact that I'm not the first pastor who's had the awkward assignment of talking about giving. Even the Apostle Paul talked about giving to the churches he planted. In the early, early days of the church, a famine hit Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was ground zero of the church. It was the first church. And then the church blew up from there. Blew up in a good way. Bad, bad phrase. But it grew from there, spread from there. So when the Jerusalem church started struggling, it really hit at the core of all the churches, because they all, in a sense, came from Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas were given the task of collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. That's Acts eleven twenty-seven through 30. Paul was eager to do this work, Galatians six ten. Paul told the, the, uh, the Corinthians how to do this offering so that it would be ready when he arrived. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 16, 1 through 4. Several years later, we learned that Paul's still involved in this fundraising work. That's Romans 15, 25 through 28. All that to say, what's so interesting to me is that Paul, the great preacher, the great apostle, the great church planner, was interested in raising money. He didn't see raising money as some unspiritual taboo. He didn't see raising money as, as a worldly pursuit. Paul, in fact, based on these texts, was committed to and even loved rallying the troops of God's people to help those who were in need. He didn't mind talking frankly about giving because he understood that real needs require real money to meet them. So we come to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you will find 2 Corinthians chapter 8, these 
two chapters are Paul's most specific and detailed instructions about giving. In fact, these two chapters are the most detailed section in the New Testament on giving, on Christian giving. We won't consider all that is here. In fact, this morning we're only going to do chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. And then next week we'll cover several other portions of these two chapters. This morning we're going to consider what Paul says about the motivation to give. Namely, that our giving should be grace-motivated. And then next week we'll see how it should also be joy-filled and worship-producing. So 2 Corinthians 8 1 through 7, Paul instructs us on the motivation for giving, namely that it should be motivated by grace. Giving starts with grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. If you got it, say grace. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8, 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Just try to pick up how many times he uses that word. About the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, that's the word for grace, for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul begins this section by telling the Corinthians about how God's grace has been at work in the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is the section right on the top of Greece. It's where the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea were located. The Corinthians are just below them, down at the bottom of Greece on this big island called Achaia or Achaia. So he's writing to one church about what God is doing in other churches in another region. In Macedonia. Paul's intent here is to encourage this church, the church in Corinth, using the churches in Macedonia, to encourage this church in Corinth by telling them about the grace of God that, that he's pouring out on other churches. This is so instructive. I wish I could preach just on this. Uh, God is doing amazing things in other churches, and, and Paul uses that to encourage another church. We should be far more Catholic, little c, than we are. We should be happy when other churches are doing great things. It's not a competition, amen? We're on the same team. So Paul uses what God is doing in other churches in another region to encourage, indeed challenge, this church in Corinth. It's likely that when Paul first devised the plan to collect money for the Jerusalem church, he didn't plan to collect money from the Macedonian churches because they already were facing hardships of their own. But while Paul is there conducting his gospel ministry, verse 1, it says the grace of God was given to them. And as a result, 
this grace, not just saving grace, okay? He's not just talking about saving grace, but grace came to them that, yes, through the gospel saved their souls, but this grace came to these churches in such a way that something happened to their pocketbooks too. So grace comes to them, and verse 5 says, they give themselves to the Lord and then to Paul, begging Paul to allow them to participate in the collection for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's the saints in Jerusalem. So notice the flow of events that's happening here in these Macedonian churches. Paul comes with the gospel. God gives grace to the believers, to those who believe, to believe. God gives more grace. They give themselves to God. They give themselves to Paul. And then they want to give money to Christians they don't even know. Grace comes. They give themselves to God. And they want to give money to people they don't even know. Do you see the order of events? This is what gospel grace does. In the gospel, grace from God comes to rebels who hate God, canceling our sin, making us holy, and then creating us in us desires to do to others what God has done to us. This is why giving has to start with grace. Lots of people give. Lots of Christians give not motivated by grace. Lots of people who aren't Christians give. My point, Paul's point, I think, is that grace must be, really is the best motivator is the thing that will truly open our hands in generosity. Especially when we don't have a lot. In these churches of Macedonia, God had created grace to be generous. Verse 2 says they were happy to do this despite their own affliction and poverty. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed, have overflowed, in a wealth of generosity on their part. So God's grace comes to these afflicted, poor, yet happy Christians and produces a wealth of generosity. Lack of money and affliction did not keep them from being generous. God's grace overcame these obstacles toward giving and compelled them to give when it didn't appear that they could or should. This, again, is the result of grace. Verse 3 says they did this voluntarily. Verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They gave of their own accord. So Paul didn't come with a bunch of manipulation and guilting and cajoling. They, verse 4 says, were the ones who started begging him to give. Giving to the collection for the saints in Jerusalem was their idea, it appears, not his. They heard of a need of other Christians they didn't even know, and grace so had gripped their hearts that they wanted to give to people they didn't know. They wanted to help. And they did it sacrificially. They did it without being manipulated. They did it of their own accord. And then it says there again in verse 3 that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. Each Christian gave what they could. More on that next week. How much should a Christian give? Come back next week. I'm going to try to answer that. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. Paul says he witnessed this with his own eyes. As I can testify, they gave beyond their 
their means. God's grace came to them in power and gave them power to do things they didn't think they could do. Things like give amounts of money they didn't think they could give. This is so instructive for us. This is instructive. The Macedonian churches weren't giving out of their surplus. Hear this. They weren't giving out of their surplus. They volunteered to give sacrificially. They didn't have disposable income and just decide that, you know, helping the Jerusalem church would be a good way to spend their money. No, Paul says that they joyfully gave out of their poverty, giving more than Paul probably expected or may have even thought wise. And all of this, again, was of their own accord. It was their idea. Their generosity wasn't the result of some flashy TV preacher who whipped up a crowd with promises of health and wealth that they gave to his ministry. Their generosity, let me just summarize again, their generosity was a result, verse 1, of God's grace. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to these churches. This grace produced generosity despite poverty and affliction. So Paul's mentioning all this, again, to challenge the Corinthians to excel in their giving just as they excel in all the other things they excel in. Verse 7, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and are left for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. In other words, hey, Corinthians, I know you guys are awesome, but there's something actually you can do better in. You can excel in generosity just like all the poor churches in Macedonia are. So Paul uses the example of the Macedonian churches to encourage and challenge the Corinthian church to do likewise. And I think the Holy Spirit inspired this text so that these Macedonian churches might do the same for us. This stuff is not in the Bible on accident. This is not merely personal correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church. God wants to say something to us using... The the example of the Macedonian churches, he wants to, I think, challenge and encourage us towards a greater liberality in our giving. We might even say it like this. The Macedonian churches in a profound way stand as an indictment to churches in our culture. Why do I say that? They... The Macedonian churches gave generously out of their poverty. We give stingily out of our wealth. I want to spend a few minutes unpacking what I mean here. I spent some time reading this week a book by two sociologists, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson, who are Christians. But they wrote a book with uh, Oxford University Press so this is a major academic work. This is based on good research, sound method. This is not somebody's blog or somebody's self-published book. But these sociologists, uh, one's at Notre Dame, one's at Rice, maybe. Anyways, these sociologists studied giving in the American church, and they wrote a book on it called Passing the Plate, Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. At the very beginning, the first page of their book, they summarize the state of American Christian giving like this. Let me read you a few lines of their introduction. Quote, 
Contemporary American Christians are among the wealthiest of their faith in the world today and probably the most affluent single group of Christians in 2,000 years of church history. Nearly all American Christians also belong to churches that teach believers as stewards of the belongings with which God has blessed them to give money generously for the work of God's kingdom. Most American Christians also profess to want to see the gospel preached in the world, the hungry fed, the church strengthened, and the poor raised to enjoy lives of dignity and hope, all tasks that normally require money. And then they say this, and yet despite all this, American Christians give away relatively little money to religious and other purposes. A sizable number of Christians give no money, literally nothing Most of the the rest of American Christians give little sums of money. All of the evidence, they say, points to the same conclusion. When it comes to sharing their money, most contemporary American Christians are remarkably ungenerous. Now, that should land on us with a little bit of weight. They go on to say, the goal of this book is not to morally chide or condemn American Christians for their tight-fistedness. We do not need to. The numbers speak for themselves, end quote. Smith and Emerson, here's what they're saying in their introduction. They're saying that the giving of American Christians is embarrassing. Based on their research, they're saying that our giving is embarrassing compared to what we profess and what we have. Let me give you a bit of their research. They say that one out of five American Christians give literally nothing to churches or other charities. One out of five, nothing. They found that American Christians give 2.9% of their annual mean household income to churches or other charities, charities, 2.9%. They point out that Jews and Mormons outgive Christians, saying, quote, If financial giving were a competition among different types of religious believers in the United States, American Christians would be among the definite losers of the contest. People dying and going to hell are more generous than us. Another finding of their research is that a small number of generous givers contribute most of the total dollars given. They say that this may lead us to think that the most generous givers are the wealthiest people, when in fact this is not the case. According to their research, higher income earning American Christians give little to no more money as a percentage of household income than lower income American Christians. Meaning, what does this mean? It means that those, for example, who make over 100K per year on average give the same percentage as those making, let's say, 40K per year. The amount may be more, but the percentages are the same. They conclude differences in generosity of giving are evidently driven by factors other than the capacity to give generously, end quote. In other words, just because someone makes a lot of money doesn't mean they're more generous with it, according to their research. Why is this the case? Why do most of us, okay, us American Christians, not people out there, why do most of us struggle to give, to be generous? 
Why are American Christians less generous than we could be? Well, in their conclusion, um, they give six reasons why. I'm only going to mention one um, because I think it's the most important and the most pervasive. Here's how they put it. Quote, every Christian impulse to, to, to generously give money away inevitably runs up against potent counter impulses driven by mass consumerism to instead perpetually spend, borrow, acquire, consume, discard, then spend more on oneself and family. The dominance of mass consumerism works powerfully, and get this, in many ways against American Christians freely and liberally giving away significant portions of their incomes to people, ministries, needs, and good causes, as most of their religious traditions call them to do. They're saying, here's what they're saying, They're saying that most of us, many of us, the main reason that many of us don't give more money away is because we've been trained by our culture to spend most of our money on ourselves. Undoubtedly, we have to spend money on ourselves. Do you have bills? (laughs) Yes, this is not the point. The, The point is that we spend the vast majority of our money on ourselves. The point is that we've bought the lie of consumerism, namely that we need things that we don't actually need. For example, we, we need housing, but we often want a house or apartment that goes well beyond our actual need. We need transportation, but we often want a vehicle that goes well beyond our need. And I could multiply these examples Emerson and Smith's argument is simple. It's, they're saying that consumerism is the number one hindrance to our generosity. Consumerism is the number one hindrance to our generosity. What else? Just think of it. What else explains why we as American Christians on average give away 3% and keep 97%? Give away 3 on average, keep 97 there are lots of reasons. They give six based on their research. The first one, I think, is right on. We are consumed, brothers and sisters. Let's just be honest. We are consumed with having the nest, biggest, brightest, flashier, fancier thing. We've confused needs and wants. And we've been, we've been trained to think this way. And so we don't even see it. We just assume that it's right. They're saying, these sociologists are saying that if we want to give more money away, we need to put consumerism to death. What does this mean practically? Well, this means seeking to live lives of radical simplicity in a culture of consumption. Let me give you some examples of what this could look like. It could start with rethinking the way we approach our standard of living as it relates to our income. For example, why do we assume? I've mentioned this to you many times before. I think I stole this from John Piper. So let me give him credit. I don't remember exactly, but I heard him say this, I think. What, why do we assume that our standard of living has to increase as our salary inque- increases? Why is that the knee-jerk assumption? Oh, I got a raise. I should go buy myself something. <laughs> Bigger this, better that, whatever. Let's question that assumption. What if instead we decided how much we need to live on, how much our family needs to live on, and then consider giving away everything else? You see how that's a revolutionary way of thinking about giving? What do you need to live? Decide that. 
and give away everything else. It might be 2%. It might be 70%. That ultimately doesn't matter. What does matter is, are you thinking according to really the world's way of thinking or a radical simplicity? Over in chapter 9, verse 11, Paul tells the Corinthians um, why God gives us so much, why he gave them so much. He says in verse 11, chapter 9, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So God tells us why he gives us more than we need. It's not so that we can increase our standard of living. He gives us more than we need so we can give more away. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. When there are so many needs in the world, why do we think that a raise in our income means a raise in our standard of living? When people aren't going to get food today, and when people have never heard Jesus' name, why do we think that way? That I have more money, therefore I should spend more money on myself. There's some other things quickly that we could do to kill consumerism, promote generosity in our lives. Things like limiting our intake of social media and other marketing mediums. Why? Because by design, these mediums foster in us a sense of need for things that we don't need and promote covetousness. So we can scale back our intake of that stuff. We can follow the voice of the Martyrs magazine, read up on how other Christians around the world are living. Let their example challenge us. We can talk to other believers about big purchases we plan on making to gain wisdom and insight about their necessity. We can take a family trip to a junkyard. Ever done that? The other day we were driving down the road. We didn't stop, but we saw one. I was like, hey, boys, check that out. That's a junkyard. And they were like, whoa, that's cool. I think I said something to the effect of, that's where all of our stuff's going to end up one day. (laughs) It's super sobering. It's a good object lesson to remind ourselves about the final resting place of every single thing we own. The Apostle Paul was radical in his views on Simple living. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing. He doesn't even mention housing. If we have food and clothing, we'll be good to go. I'm not saying that we should all live like outside. I'm not saying that. He's radical, though, about the difference between want and need. We need far less than we think we need. Far less than our culture tells us we need. But because we've believed the hundreds of thousands of commercials and marketing employees out there, we end up spending money on stuff we don't need. And therefore, back to Emerson and Smith, therefore, because we all do that, we have very little to give away. Our generosity is hindered. Of course, the thing about possessions is that we think we own them, but they end up owning us. Everything we buy, everything we invest in, is one more thing to think about, talk about, carry, care about, worry about, replace when it breaks. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. In other words, the more stuff you have, the more stuff you're going to worry about. So scale back on what you have. 
give more away, and you'll sleep better. <laughs> I think that's what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 5.12. There's a tyranny of consumerism in our culture, and I pray that it's not in our church. Alcorn goes on to say that there's really one way to, to, to battle this. Of course, we can pray. We can do some of these things I've mentioned. All this is good, but one main way we can... We can battle consumerism. He says the antidote of consumerism is giving. (laughs) Why? Because, again, Jesus says that our hearts will follow our treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. Paul says it like this, 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So if consumerism is the sickness, giving is the cure. If our hope is set on the accumulation of more stuff, or to get this, because really a lot of us don't care so much about stuff so much as appearances. Appearances. We want to be seen as wealthy. This is why I always found it so humorous in our apartment complex. (laughs) People rolling in with like these $70,000 cars. And I'm like, dude, you're not wealthy. (laughs) You're spending everything on that car. Point is, we are often, often, not always, we are often so consumed with our appearance, with how people are seeing us and perceiving us. We want to be perceived as wealthy and successful and, and, you know, go-getters and strong and everything else. So... We live, we choose to live a certain way and then throw breadcrumbs towards the needs of a world suffering and dying without Christ. I love that passage I read in 1 Timothy 6, though. Paul says, though, to us who are wealthy, that's all of us in America. If we're wealthy, then we should set our hope on God. And when we set our hope on God, our hands will open up and we'll be generous and ready to share. Paul said the Macedonians gave generously to Christians they didn't even know as a result of God's grace working in their lives. The gracious giving of God motivated the gracious giving of God's people. So as we close, um, just let's let's do some self-reflection. Let's think. Let's let me challenge you to think. What's motivating your giving? I'm truly more on this next week, but I'm not as concerned in how much and all that. That's not. What's motivating? What's motivating the way you handle what's in your hands? The Macedonians were poor and afflicted, but in joy they were liberal. They were generous. What motivates us? Is it kind of this mere philanthropy? Maybe we just want to give back to the community, ease our guilt for having more than others? feel good about ourselves, to receive rewards of health, wealth, and prosperity. What motivates our giving? Is our giving, is your giving motivated by the grace of God? The action of God's grace in our hearts creates the reaction of liberal generosity. May it be so among us, brothers and sisters. Let me say it this way. May it continue to be so among us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, give us yet again grace to think about these things, 
these, these difficult things, these things that uh, often rub us the wrong way because uh, we, we have thought and acted in certain ways with our possessions that, that aren't as generous as they could be. So forgive us, have mercy on us. I pray that you would train our minds and hearts to be motivated by grace to give and live generously. Whether we have a lot or a little, whether we're a college student or retired, give us grace that motivates generosity, liberality, despite affliction, despite poverty. May our people here, may we at Preston Highlands be known as generous, uh, unusually generous people. For the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations and here even in our own community. We ask that you would do this, Father, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.